Our sermon text this week picks up where we left off last week, in John chapter 5. This week we're going to be talking about the concept of Sabbath. Um, This is the first place in the Gospel of John where Jesus has uh, first disagreements with the Jewish leaders over the Sabbath. Jesus begins healing people. He does acts of mercy on the Sabbath day, and this offended the traditions of the elders there, their ideas of what Sabbath was. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to pause and talk about Sabbath, um, what it was given by God, how it had become warped over time, and what it can mean for us today on the other side of the victory of Christ. With that said, um, we'll be in John chapter 5, verses 8 through 16. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Then Jesus said to him, the man that he healed, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said, well, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow? that told you to pick up your mat and walk. And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that in it we catch a glimpse, a revelation of who you are and what you're about, and so a picture of who we are and what we are to be about. Illumine our hearts here today. Open the eyes of our hearts to see your grace, to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus in this passage and the reality of the gospel. I pray all this in his name. Amen. So you ever seen a good gift, a truly good thing, become warped into something that it was never intended to be? I think um, I ask that question, the answer is yes. We, we probably have all seen that. Um, human history, I think, proves that we're uniquely talented at taking good things and warping them, either into idols, so you know, false gods in a sense that we seek after for security, for... Uh, identity. We either warp them into idols or we warp them into weapons. We take good things and they become weapons of condemnation against other people or they become literal weapons <laughs> of violence. Uh, for the idols, you know, we can, we can think of, uh, uh, you know, it's Father's Day. Being a father is a good thing. Family is a good thing. But how easy is it for us to take family and warp that and make family our ultimate thing? And suddenly uh, we're asking our kids and our spouse, maybe, to bear a weight of identity that they can't. Um, That happens often enough, I think. We take good things and we make them into idols. Or we take good things and we make them into weapons. You know, the the discoveries of science at the beginning of the 20th century. They split the atom. And suddenly this whole world opened up to physicists. And it became the atom in the generation. We take good things, we warp them into either idols or weapons. In this passage, we see that very thing happen. That's happened with the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath, a gift, a good gift given by God to his people, a gift given for human flourishing and thriving in this world, had been turned from a gift into an idol and a weapon. Ultimately, a weapon that was used against Jesus himself. So, with that, what is the Sabbath after all? Um, I think we don't really have a good concept of it because our, our, our culture is just so different from this agrarian, you know, mostly farmer culture back then. So what was the Sabbath? Um, well, the Sabbath was a gift given by God for his people. It was a pattern, a rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest. It's one day in seven set apart every week where no one did their normal jobs where people rested from their works and they gathered for worship. And it was one day in seven set apart to tell God's people a couple of things. It was told, uh, we're not our jobs. We said that in our call to worship. We're not our jobs. Our jobs do not define who we are. When God gave the Sabbath to the new kingdom of Israel, that was what it said. You're not identified by your job. It also said that work is meant to lead to rest and enjoyment. Work is not an end to itself. Work is meant to lead to a rest and an enjoyment in what you've done. And it was also set in place to ensure that we were cared for, that God's people didn't work themselves into the ground, physically, literally, <laughs> working every day, and that you cared for other people. That the people that you uh, maybe were over as, a, as an employer, you didn't want them into the ground. But the Sabbath wasn't just one day and seven once a week. The Sabbath was part of this whole calendar, the Sabbath system that was set up in the kingdom of Israel. The Sabbath was once a week, but then there were also the festivals. We've talked about that. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover, for um, Pentecost, for Tabernacles. These were festivals that every faithful Jewish person, person celebrated. And so those three times a year, everything ground to halt. <laughs> Everybody stopped working, and they went to Jerusalem to worship and to rest. These were times of joy, of celebration, that were built into the calendar. You could not work 52 weeks a year. You couldn't. It was impossible. Uh, the, the Sabbath principle, we see it in things like um, every year farmers weren't allowed to harvest every piece of their field. If you had a field and you were growing this food, you would go through one good time. And then the law literally said, don't go back in again. Don't pick up the, the leftovers. Leave those and those who are underprivileged, those who are poor, will go behind. And that belongs to them. It's not yours. It was items that were set apart from this whole. This is kind of part of this whole Sabbath system, the edges of the field. But not only was there the once a week and the three festivals a year, there was the Sabbath year. Every seven years, there was what was called a Sabbath year where you literally did not plant or harvest at all. The land lay fallow. So even your land belonged to you and your family. Every seven years, you didn't plant, you didn't harvest. You lived off whatever the land gave you that year or whatever you had stored up. And not only you rested, your animals rested. The land rested. The people who worked for you rested. 
Imagine that. Isn't that great? A year of vacation every seven years. By the way, if you've ever heard the term sabbatical, that's where it comes from. It's every seven years. And so there was this Sabbath year. These are clear limitations uh, on the so-called economic prosperity of people. But again, it's reminding them, you are not what you can produce. Period. And then if that sounds extreme, every 49 years, there was what was called a year of jubilee. Year of Jubilee was this hard reset on everything. All debts were forgiven. All mortgages wiped out. Period. Bankers hated it, I'm sure, or the equivalent of whatever bankers were at the time. Every 49 years, all debts wiped out, whether those be mortgages on land or property, whether those be debts of servitude, maybe you sold yourself into be a servant into this person. Now you can see this year of Jubilee, this every seven year Sabbath. This uh, three festivals a year, this day of rest, this was a built-in instrument of thriving and justice. It set boundary lines to keep people from taking advantage of each other, to keep people from working themselves into the ground, and to protect families from generational poverty. If your dad made a mistake, a big mistake, and had to sell everything that belonged to the family, whenever that next year Jubilee rolled around, it came back. It protected you and your family against these generational cycles of poverty. And what the Sabbath principle, this thing that was built in, was saying was the kingdom of God was not a place where people take advantage of one another. It's not a place where people take advantage of one another. People are not a means to an end. People are valued above what they can produce. People are valued above what they can do for you. So, you can see how the Sabbath given by God was an incredible gift. An incredible gift. But like a lot of gifts we talked about, it became warped over time. It became an idol. It became a weapon. So let's talk about that a little bit. How had the Sabbath become an idol? Well, it had become, rather than this gift of thriving and human flourishing that existed in the, in the, in the kingdom, it had become a measuring rod for religious folks to feel self-righteous. It was this gift given by God, and then people would say, well, I keep the Sabbath better than you. I rest even better. You sleep eight hours, I sleep nine. Well, they didn't really say that. But what had literally happened over time, by the time of Jesus, is uh, the command to rest, which was very general. God had said, set this day apart and rest. Well, people in later generations had said, well, what is rest? What is work? And they had created 39 different categories of work and had detailed in explicit, like strong detail, exactly how, like there was something called a Sabbath mile. It was an understanding. You could only go, ex now they didn't have like step counters on the phones or whatever, but they could only go X amount of uh, distance from their house. And they could carry this kind of face, but they couldn't carry this pot. They could carry uh, this kind of, they could put out a fire if it was going to threaten somebody's life, but if a fire was burning, like in the woods, you couldn't go put it out. That's what they said. Because that, that would be work. All kinds of things had built up over time. And this wasn't things that God had said. These are things that people were adding to what God had said. And so this good gift of God had become this meticulous burden, in a sense. And so people would get to Sabbath day, when they're supposed to rest, be able to turn their bodies off from just the rat race of the world, whatever it, even it looked like then, 
And they're thinking, wait, did I travel too far? Did so-and-so see me carry the pot from the backyard to the, to the door? Like, it had become this burden. And it had been detached as a gift given by God from God's heart. And it had become something that it never meant to be. It had become an idol. People would look to it and say, well, I honor the Sabbath. And so God must love me more, in essence. It had become, in a sense, a source of identity. I'm a Sabbath they had added all their own rules, not given by God at all. We see it in this passage. Look how the religious leaders respond to this man's incredible healing. We talked about it last week. This man had been uh, weighed down by this sickness for 38 years. 38 years. And here they see him restored to life, vitality. He couldn't so much as get into the water to this... Uh, hot spring for all this time. And now he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem with his mat on his back. Probably walking with a skip. I would be skipping. Um, but what did they say? Don't they, say? they don't say, look at this wonder. Look at this man who's been healed. They say, hey. Hey, what are you doing? They say, the law forbids you from carrying your mat. Now, get the scene. This man, incredibly healed. And the first thing they say is, hey, they're running. They're running on the side. Can't carry your mat. Obviously, it had become warped. It had become an idol. This measuring rod, not just for themselves, but for other people. Now, I think of how it become warped, like a parent telling a kid not to play on the road. You tell a kid not to go on the road because there's cars on the road, right? And so it's a, it's a don't go on the road. Plan to go on. Don't go on the road. Now what if the kid took that? And this command is given so the kid stays safe. And the kid thinks, well, mom said don't go on the road. I'm not even going to go outside. If I don't go outside, I won't go on the road. And so the kid doesn't go outside at all. But then their sibling wants to go play outside. The sibling goes outside to play. The, kid, the sibling's not playing in the road, but the kid inside's thinking, I love mom better because I'm inside. I'm not even close to the road. That's what's going on here. God had not said, don't carry your mat if you've just been healed after 38 years of sickness. God is delighting in what Jesus has just done for this man. But the sibling who thinks that they can earn God's love is sitting inside going, just, just. So, as I said, the Sabbath, this gift, had been given, become an idol. And people had taken advantage of it. But it had also been warped into a weapon. It becomes an idol of sorts, and, and not just an idol, a weapon of condemnation toward others, and ultimately a weapon used against Jesus. They used the, the Sabbath as a weapon against this newly healed man, as we just said. They looked at him in his healing, and they condemn him in his joy. They condemn him in the joy of his wholeness, using the Sabbath, this gift of God, to beat him down. To stamp out this joy that had just been given to him by Jesus. Sabbath for 
forbids you to carry your mat. It's easy for us to, uh, I think, take good things and maybe even inadvertently use them as weapons against other people. Um, I think of, so I know this story from uh, the seminary I went to. So a number of years ago, I don't actually know who this was. I just know this story secondhand. But a number of years ago, uh, one of the female students at the seminary, her car had broken down. And she needed to get back to the seminary apartments, which was like three miles away from the campus. And it's late at night. The only other person there is a guy who works in the library who also lives at the seminary apartments, three miles away. Her car's broken down. He has his car. She asks him for a ride. And he says, well, I told my wife I'd never be alone with another woman, so I'm sorry I can't give you a ride. He gets in his car and he drives home. He just leaves her there at this empty campus in Orlando, Florida. Uh, doesn't even, like, send his wife back with the car. Doesn't do any of that. What he had done, he had taken probably this good rule that he and his wife had set up. And he had almost inadvertently used it against this woman. Not inadvertently. He had left this woman in the parking lot all along. Why didn't he let her take the car? Why didn't he... Uh, he could have let her take the car and walk home. Or let her take the car, his wife come back and get him. Any number of things that he had uh, inadvertently used this thing that he and his wife had set up for each other um, as a, a reason not to help. It's a very strange story, I agree. But in their hands, in this passage, uh, in a much stronger way, the Sabbath has become a weapon of condemnation for this man. But not just for this man, for Jesus himself. As we see in verse 16, springing from this, they began to persecute Jesus. This becomes a point of contention. We'll see it pop up later on in the Gospel of John, a few times. Jesus keeps healing people on the Sabbath. And they have a big problem with which is preposterous. But they have this huge problem where Jesus keeps healing on the Sabbath and then Jesus says things that drive them crazy. Like, I, I'm one with my Father. My Father is at work and so am I. Saying, you know, God's sustaining of all things happens even on this day of rest. I am the Son of God and I have come to restore and sustain they keep saying it. He keeps saying things that drive them crazy. And this disagreement over the Sabbath kind of becomes the sticking point that leads to them eventually turning against him wholesale and handing him over for crucifixion to the Roman authorities. It's an animosity that builds up over time. Think about the tragic irony in all of that. This gift of rest and rejuvenation, this gift of justice and rest given by God is used against the Son of God. Jesus, the Word who was with God in the beginning, who gave the Sabbath, finds His own gift used against Him as a point of condemnation. What a tragic moment. To not only warp the gift, but to spit in the face of the giver. So the Sabbath's been warped into an idol, into a weapon. But it's not just a gift that's been warped. It's a promise that's been silenced. It's a promise.
promise that's been silenced. Even the Old Testament, in the Old Testament itself, the Sabbath is seen as both something that gives rhythm and structure, which we've already talked about, to their lives. But it's also an arrow pointing forward. If you read through the Old Testament, the Sabbath becomes kind of this symbol, this emblem of where God's work is leading. That God is at work to bring a great kind of eternal Sabbath to his people. A rest to his people that they can enter into. That, that, can, that can become theirs. That life isn't an aimless chasing after this thing or that thing. But that time is leading to a rest from labors. In fact, the completion of God's work of redemption is this eternal Sabbath. The culmination all of his work, bringing his kingdom to bear on our world in the greatest extent, rolling back the effects of sin, that we might rest in the security and the grace of his love. So in that sense, the Sabbath instituted by God pointed squarely to Jesus. Pointed squarely to Jesus, the one through whom God was bringing his kingdom in its fullness. The king who does reign in righteousness and justice. The one who does see and lift up the home. The one who doesn't just bring a stoppage to work on one day, but the one who can truly be, bring rest and guarantee that God's purposes will be brought to life in our world. The Sabbath always pointed to Jesus. And that's why the earliest Christians, the very earliest Christians, that first generation, remember, who were all Jewish, they began worshiping not on Saturday, not on the traditional Sabbath day, the last day of the week, from the very earliest times, they began to gather on Sunday, the first day. Why? Because Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. What they saw is that the Sabbath always pointed forward to Jesus. Always pointed forward to Jesus. And what he had completed in his cross and resurrection led into a new creation. A new first day, in a sense. And so they began to gather on Sunday because they'd seen something cataclysmic, something uh, profoundly world-transforming had happened. And now they stood as people not looking forward to what God was going to do, but that God had already started to bring His uh, kingdom to bear in Christ. And had already completed something in Him so that they now lived as people looking forward out from the worthiness that was theirs in the resurrection. Now, in the New Testament, you won't see it called Sunday because they didn't call their days that at the time. But you'll see it called the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. Yeah, the, every day is the Lord's Day. They all belong to Him. But when they say the Lord's Day, John says it in Revelation. They talk about it in the book of Acts. That's them gathering on Sunday, this day that they said it. It's set apart by Jesus and His victory. Just like those earliest Christians, we stand in this long shadow cast by Jesus... As those who have begun to enter into the rest that he gives to his people, but people who await its fullness. Because we don't see the fullness of the kingdom. We live in this already, but not yet time. God has already won the victory, but it's not yet brought completely to bear. And in the here and now, in this in-between time, we can experience some of the flourishing that God intended for human beings when he instituted the Sabbath in the first place. How? Well, that's where we're going to close. Some ideas about how to apply this concept to us. 
Not to turn the good gifts of God into a, a, an idol or a, a weapon, but to live into this uh, rest that is ours in Christ. The first way is to know God's intentions for you. The Sabbath was supposed to tell all of those people in the kingdom of Israel throughout all of those generations. The Sabbath was supposed to be a once a week reminder to them that you're not your job. You're not what you can produce. You're not the grades you make. You were made for flourishing. And so you're not going to work seven days. You're not. We're going to make this where you can rest and know that you are worth rest. It is okay to rest. God's intentions for you, for us, and we see even more clearly in Christ, are for us to live in the worthiness that is ours in the gospel. I think that's what actually Jesus was after when he said in verse 14 to the man, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He's not saying the reason you got sick in the first place is because you were super sinful. Now watch out, you're going to get sick again if you sin some more. I think what Jesus is saying is this. God's intentions for this man are to live a life set free from even the bondage of sin. To heal him not only from a physical ailment, from, but from the inward destruction that sin brings. And the man could rest from his labor of trying to find physical healing, which he had lived in, trying to get into that hot spring for 38 years. But his body has now been restored so that he could pursue goodness, not selfishness and sin. And so we can live as people knowing God's intentions for us, knowing his delight in us as his children, and let that be the springboard out into the rest of our lives. The, the love of God in Christ can become a bedrock for us. Not just one day in seven, like it was for the ancient kingdom of Israel that gave them rhythm. But the love of God in Christ can become our rhythm. The thing we come back to every single day. Uh, another way we can apply this is we can practice Sabbath rest. We can practice Sabbath rest. Now the earliest Christians, as I said, they started worshiping on Sundays and not on Saturdays, the traditional Sabbath. And so we can prioritize gathering for worship. We can prioritize gathering for worship. We set this day apart as different than other days. Maybe being a part of applying this reality to our lives is being even more purposeful about this. Maybe we ask questions about what does it look like for us to be intentional in our, for myself and for my family and rest. Um, I don't, and I'm not going to about to start creating 39 different categories of like you need to put your phone on do not disturb starting at 6 p.m. on Saturday. Like none of that. We're not doing that. We live in the freedom, right? But maybe we start thinking through what does it mean to set the day apart for it to be different, for it to be set apart, not just for worship and rest, but maybe for acts of mercy. I know a lot of people who part of their Sabbath rhythm is they find things. Uh, ways for them to do good on that day. Nothing big. They don't, you know, go out for five hours to do this and you know, clean up yards. I mean, maybe you want to do that. But to find out intentional ways to worship and to rest. Because God gave that, gave the Sabbath principle um, not as a burden for us to wear, not as a measuring rod for us to see how righteous we are, but as a way to care for us. To be intentional about rest. 
The third one is, uh, is this, and we'll close with this. We pray for and we begin to develop a Sabbath culture in our church. Develop a Sabbath culture in our church. I spoke earlier about the Sabbath system that it was set up. Um, you know, when we talk about the year Jubilee, this incredible like wiping away of debts. What generosity that would be. But the huge part of what that system was is it was supposed to make the kingdom of God a distinct community. The kingdom of God, of all the kingdoms of the world, would be a place where people were not taken advantage of, where people were not valued just what they, by just what they could do for you or how much money they had in their bank account. It was a place where the poor would not be mistreated. It was a place where bosses wouldn't be able to lord over their employees. A place where people wouldn't work themselves into the ground chasing the false money of God or success. And so for us as a church, I think this is our calling to create a, a community where we remind each other often that we are not our jobs, that we're not valuable because of our position on an organizational chart. We're not valuable because of our, our grades on a report card or whatever it might be. That I'm valuable because I have been chased by the love of God in Christ. And that's mine. And God delights in me as His Son. That's my anchor. That's my value. Developing Sabbath culture in our church, I think, means uh, a culture of generosity. Talk about, you know, you couldn't harvest your entire field. You left it open. And that means you left money options on the table, to use our terminology. You left options to build wealth for you on the table. You made hard decisions that were going to impact you personally for the benefit of other people. Maybe that level of sacrificial generosity is what God's calling us to. And I don't mean uh, necessarily... Uh, I don't want to put specific things on them. That's how they got off base in the first place, creating those 39 categories. So spelling out exactly what this and that and this and that. But to create a place... Where people see our church. Where people see the relationships that we have with each other. And they say, that's different. That's different. They really do carry each other's burdens. They really do love each other. They really do uh, uh, walk with each other. place where we swing the doors of our church as wide open as Jesus has swung the doors of his kingdom and we invite people to come in not to find more stuff to do because we can find stuff to do in a thousand different places but we swing the doors open and we invite people into the rest of God let's pray Father I thank you that you care for us for our flourishing, for our thriving. And that in this world where we can chase after a thousand different things to try to find our worth and our identity, that we can rest it securely in you. An objective truth in our subjective world. That your love for us in Christ is the most important thing about who we are. And everything else can spill out of that. And so... I pray that you would help us to rest, literally, physically rest, 
to work that as into a pattern in our life, that you would help us to rest spiritually in who you say we are, that we can rest from our labors of trying to prove ourselves, that we can live out of this worthiness. Work that in us, God. Change us individually and as a community, as a church. Develop a Sabbath culture here, a culture of generosity, a culture of joy. Make us people who walk in your joy and in your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.